Hello, my name is Joe Schwartz, and I would like to take a moment to tell you about my podcast. It's called Still Unknown, and it's a podcast dealing exclusively with unsolved murders, disappearances, unexplained deaths, and other unsolved mysteries. If you are a fan of the classic TV show Unsolved Mysteries, then you'll definitely want to check out my podcast, as many episodes deal with cases featured on the show that still need answers. So look for Still Unknown on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And let's solve some mysteries together. Hey everyone, welcome to Forensic Miles. My name is Miles. What's up guys, it's Sean. Welcome back to those of you who have listened before, and welcome to anyone who's new. Forensic Miles is an unofficial companion podcast to the cult favorite show, Forensic Files. You've seen the show, you know the crime, but is there more to the story? Let's find out. So today we're going to be covering the episode, Sharper Image, the murder of Shara Ferger. This episode does deal with the murder of a child, and it is a very brutal murder. Okay, let's just jump right into it. On October 3rd, 1997, Crystal Ferger went to wake her little sister, Shara, who was nine at the time, up for school. The night before, Shara and her younger brother, Joseph, had fallen asleep on the couch while watching TV. Their live-in babysitter, Jack Hubble, had put a blanket on the two, tucked them in, and gone to bed with his wife in another room. So I remember falling asleep on the couch, and, you know, this is something that you would normally do. This is this is definitely normal. Joseph at some point woke up and he was scared. He had heard a sound and he went to Hubble's room and told him um, that he was scared and Hubble ended up soothing him back to sleep and letting him sleep with him in his bedroom, leaving Shara asleep alone in the living room. When Crystal approached the couch, she noticed that Shara wasn't there. In fact, she wasn't even in the house. Shara was missing. Hubble and his wife immediately raised the alarm and alerted the neighbors that Shara was nowhere to be found. And they started a little search party trying to find her. They thought maybe she had wandered off, gone to the woods. They weren't really sure. All they knew was that Shara was not there. Shara's mother, Karen, called the school thinking she may have gone to school. But when they found out that she wasn't there, they immediately knew something was wrong. Hubble said that when they knew she wasn't at school, that's when everyone felt dread. We started looking under rocks. We thought anything could have happened. Unfortunately, the search didn't last long. By 3.30 p.m. the same day, a body of a young girl was found 300 yards from the Ferger home. Wow. It was soon identified as Shara's. It's really close. It was really close. Shara was found to have been repeatedly raped, bitten, stabbed nine times in her head, six of which went through her skull. Mm. 
She had 33 stab wounds to her chest, which pierced her lungs and heart, and another four to her neck for a grand total of 46 stab wounds. Wow. I mean... Sounds like overkill. I couldn't imagine. I mean, she's she's nine years old. What could this child have done to make somebody so angry? Yeah. She'd been left wearing nothing but a green t-ball shirt, which supposedly was her favorite. And I'm going to post a picture on the Instagram of her wearing a green t-ball shirt. I'm not sure this is the one that she was found in. Um, but it's clear that she really enjoyed playing sports. A few hairs were found on her body. They had the root still attached, so they would be able to run a DNA test, which was you Canadian. know, great at this point. They felt that they had some clues as to who the killer was, even as early as this point. They knew the murderer must be known to Shara, or at the very least the Ferger family, as there was no forced entry into the home, and it seemed as though they may have entered through the back door of the home, which had a broken lock. So somebody known to the family would have known that this back door didn't lock. It was always open. Yep. Open for business. I guess. They felt that there was a possibility of two killers, as Shara had been stabbed with both a knife and a screwdriver, but obviously they weren't 100% sure at this point. Immediately, the suspicion focuses on Hubble, which doesn't seem so out of the ordinary. He was their live-in nanny. He lived with the girls and the family. Um, And it was clear that Shara had been attacked by a man. Police thought he did it. The neighbors thought he did it. Supposedly, almost everyone in the neighborhood mentioned him as a suspect. And he was arrested the same day Shara was found for failure to pay child support and then questioned about the murder. Hmm. Karen Ferger, Shara's mother, was a single parent with three children and a night job at a food processing plant. She realized that she needed a live-in nanny to help and take care of the kids and was able to make an arrangement with Hubble. He would nanny in exchange for a place to live with his wife. So it was an interesting arrangement, but it seemed to work for both of them, I guess. Wait, so this guy and his wife were living in the house with the three kids? With the three kids and And... Karen. Mm -hmm. And he would nanny while um, Karen was at work. Hmm. Seems odd. It it does seem a little bit odd. (laughs) On the night before Shara's murder, Crystal Ferger... Shara's older sister, told her mother something odd had happened. She said that she had woken up to Hubble in her bedroom. He didn't touch her or mess with her in any way, but he was messing with her window. When asked about it, Hubble said he was looking for his medication. He was a recovering drug addict. Um, so this whole situation was honestly really weird. There, there, should, there was no reason that Hubble should have been in her bedroom at all. Yeah, how old is she? Um, I'm not 100% sure how old she was, but she's definitely in her teens. Mm. Actually, she was probably around 17. Actually, I just did the math, and she would have been 15 at that point. It seemed, I guess, somewhat harmless, but extremely weird. In either case, it scared Crystal, and the night of the murder, she decided that she would lock her door and her window in case he came. In, he tried to come in again. So it really you know, raise the hairs on the back of her neck. And if something does that, you definitely should listen to your instincts. And that's exactly what she does. 
Hubble was subjected to five hours of interrogation. He was told he was the number one suspect. He had his blood tested, a lie detector test, and a dental impression because there were um, bite. There was a bite mark on Shara's Cher- body. Uh-huh. Investigators suspected that he had tried again to get into Crystal's room that night in an attempt to sexually assault her. But when he found the door was locked, he moved on to Shara. He said that by the end, he just wanted things to be over and he was almost at the point of confessing to the crime. The thing is, Hubble didn't do it. It might have been a really strange situation that they had been in, but Hubble was actually innocent of this crime. Hmm. He later stated, quote, They told me I was the number one suspect. Everything they wanted done. Dental impressions. Blood. I was the first they did it to. If I didn't confess, I was about to. He said, quote, They said I was the last to see her alive, and I said I was the last to see her alive, except for the animal who did this. Wow. So he, you know, was subjected to harsh interrogation, um, and he claimed over and over again that he was not responsible for this crime. He said while he was in jail, he had one of the detectives who interrogated him make a promise that when the DNA came back not matching him, the detective would go to his home and apologize. So later, neither his DNA or his dental records matched the evidence. And five days after his arrest, Hubble was released um, from prison. And the search was back on for Shara's killer. Um, It is noted that the detective did end up coming by the house and shaking hands with Hubble. Nice. So he was able to get get his apology. Um, They were back to zero until October 16th, which was about 13 days after the murder when a man named Dale Morris was charged with the murder. So Dale Morris was part of the neighborhood, um, and he was brought in for questioning, and he claimed that he didn't know Shara or the Ferger family. However, the investigators knew that this was basically 100% false. (laughs) Um, Yeah, lived right down the street from him. Yep, Dale was a neighbor to the Ferger home, and Shara had actually been to his home before to play with his stepdaughter. So, like, (sighs) they knew this was a lie. This was a blatant lie. Why would he even say that lie? Like, it's clearly, like, easy to confirm that it was a lie. Was he, like, a sex offender or anything? I don't think so. I think he was just nervous. Hmm. I mean, he was brought in for questioning on the murder of a little girl. I could only imagine, you know, if you're innocent, how and if you're not innocent, how horrible of a situation that would be. Yeah. So the arrest <laughs> basically shook the entire neighborhood. Unlike Hubble, who had only lived there around three months when Shara was murdered, Morris was a staple in the, in the neighborhood and known by many. His brother, Billy Christie, said, quote, He's not the type of person. I know it was somebody in the neighborhood, but I don't think he did it. Morris's neighbor said, Out of a lot of people I thought could have done this, it wouldn't have been him. He was very close to his wife. I even yelled over to him the other day and asked if they'd arrested anyone, and he said no. It affected so many in the neighborhood, the Fergers, Hubble, and Morris's wife, as well as stepdaughter. But they found solace in the fact that they had finally found the murderer and could once again feel safe in his home. Hubble even mentioned that he finally felt comfortable leaving or letting his son go and play out in the neighborhood without supervision. How did they how did they come to him again? I'll get to that in just one second. Um the truth was They hadn't actually found the killer. And the person who did this was much, much closer to home. 
Morris was also innocent. What? Yep. You see, what the investigators did was they asked 18 of the men in the neighborhood to provide them with dental impressions. Then, all 18 of these dental impressions were analyzed against the image of the bite impression on Shara's body. The odontologist compared all 18 of the dental impressions and found that Morris's imprints had a few consistencies and no inconsistencies with the injury on Shara's body. Therefore, he was clearly the one who did it. And you know how we feel about dental impressions. <laughs> They're not super reliable. But the guy that did this was supported by a second renowned odontologist. They were both renowned in their field and highly respected. However, this finding was disputed by the defense, who also had two highly renowned odontologists of their own, and said one tooth in particular was facing basically like the opposite direction of the one in the picture. So Morris spent four months in jail as a child killer. Then, Jeez. I know, <laughs> I know. Surprised he actually made survived it. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, then, while he was waiting for trial, I think they said he was about sixteen weeks away from trial. The DNA results came back, proving that Morris was innocent of the crime. So he got off lucky. He could have gone to trial for that if there was no DNA. Oh yeah, I don't know if I'd consider him lucky though. Well, Being in jail for those four months as a child killer and rapist. Yeah. Probably but pretty tough four months. He, he was able to get out based on this DNA evidence. Um, he said that he went through hell. Morris was actually, you know, pretty cool with everything that happened to him. I mean, you know, as much as you could be. Um, police apologized and he accepted the apology and he was honestly just happy to be home again with his wife. In the Forensic Files episode, um, you'll see, I think, one of the first moments that he's back with his wife and he just, he just seems so relieved. Um, Is that something that he can, like, sue? He did. He did sue. Uh Um, I didn't actually see what the results of that lawsuit were, um, but I did discover that by the time of the trial for the real killers, um, Morris had actually passed away. Oh. Yeah, so he didn't really live that much longer after this whole case. Oh, that's a bummer. I know. Was he sick or? I don't know. Um, but after Morris got out, the investigation was once again stalled and police didn't know where to look. The investigation soon went cold. So police decided to start from the beginning and see if there was anything that they had missed the first time around. And ding, 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 guess what? Turns out they had missed something. In 2001, they decided to question a man named Gary Eilish, or Elishi. What do you think? Elishi? 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 Gary Elishi Cochran. They asked him about the night of Shara's murder. Cochran had an alibi. He said that he wasn't in the neighborhood that night and that he was out partying with a friend. And now this, I want to just say something. If I was asked four years later what I was doing on a particular night, I don't think that I would be able to do that. Yeah, I feel like if you give an alibi that almost looks worse on you. And being like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Let me look. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, yeah, let me see if I, let me go through my Instagram, see what I was doing on that night. (laughs) Anyway, the issue with this alibi was that it was 100% a lie. And the investigators knew this. They immediately felt like Cochran was hiding something. Cochran had actually spent time with Shara earlier that day. They had gone to a fair together. They knew that Cochran had a murky past with arrests in grand theft and burglary. They also knew that Cochran was actually Shara's uncle. Really? Yep. He had also spent some time living in the Ferger home, so he would have 100% have known about that broken lock. Um, you know, because he lived there. Yeah. He also didn't have a great relationship with Karen, Shara's mother. When Karen and Shara's father divorced, Karen didn't let him see Shara very often, and Cochran never really kind of, like forgave her for this. They were never really able to repair that relationship. Oh, so Cochran was the dad's brother. Cochran, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. He willingly provided investigators with a hair sample. However, there was no match. The investigators were worried that they once again had the wrong man when a jail informant came forward with some very interesting information. Jailhouse rat. Yep. Gotta love him. This person said that while Cochran was in prison, he had done something that was very interesting and pretty unusual. He had bit a few inmates. Hmm. So this, I think, is a little bit rare for an adult to bite somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> I don't typically go around biting people. No, I would hope not. <laughs> After questioning Cochran's wa- or ex-wife, they found that while they were getting intimate, Cochran would often bite her, even to the point where he drew blood. So this was like, we're starting to see a pattern here. Hannibal. Yep. They took a dental impression and ding, 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 they matched. So they finally felt confident that they had at least one of the people that was responsible for Shara's death. Cochran had an excuse, though. Of course he did. He claimed that he was falsely accused of the murder and that when he was with Shara earlier in the day, he may have accidentally, jokingly bit her. Seems like a pretty extreme step there i mean i don't think there's any reason ever to bite a child (laughs) yeah how do you playfully bite her and leave a huge like indent on her no Mm -mm. and um actually they the medical examiner was able to prove that this wasn't true and that um there was no way she would have been bit i don't know six to eight hours um earlier with the, the imprint that was on her body. Like, it was clear that it had happened within moments of death. Uh, yeah, because otherwise the skin just would have, like, gone back into place. Well, it would have started to heal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they knew that Cochran had been involved, but since his hair didn't match the hair left on Shara's body, they also knew now for sure that there had been a second perp. Luckily... A second witness came forward and said that they had seen Cochran on the night of the murder, and he was with his 17-year-old friend, Gary Steve Cannon. Investigators brought Cannon in for questioning, and when asked if he knew Shara or the Ferger family, Cannon said he did not. This was, again, 100% a flat-out lie. Cannon absolutely knew the family. In fact, Karen Ferger had known Cannon since he was a child. Like, 
they had been family friends. He'd been to the Ferger home on many occasions because he had actually dated Crystal Ferger for a time. So, you know, these lies are coming out. (laughs) When they realized he was lying, investigators knew that he must be involved. They took a hair sample, and it actually took them eight weeks to get results. But when the DNA results came back, they were a match. So... Now they have a solid DNA match for Cannon and a solid bite impression mark for, um, or match for um, Cochran. Both Cochran and Cannon were arrested for the murder of Shara Ferger. Prosecutors believed that Cochran and Cannon had been drinking and doing crack cocaine together that night. Sometime after midnight, the two entered the Ferger home through the door with the broken lock. They had made some kind of a noise, and this noise scared Joseph, leading him to run to Hubble's room for protection and leaving Shara alone on the couch in the living room. Jeez. Poor thing. I know. They think Cochran and Cannon had intended to assault Crystal that night, but when they found the door locked, they moved on to Shara. I can't imagine what Crystal would have been feeling. Yeah. I mean... It's insanely lucky that she had locked her door on that particular night. Like, there's no evidence that she had ever locked her door before. Yeah. Um, But this night, she felt in her soul... Little did she know who she was actually locking the door from. I know. Wasn't the other... Wasn't the babysitter. Hubble. Yeah, Hubble. I know. It's bizarre. (laughs) They somehow convinced Shara to leave the home with them. I, You know, it was her uncle, so I don't know that it would have been that difficult for them to talk her out of the house. And she was like... Nine. She was asleep, too, and she like was just asleep, woken up. She probably... Disoriented. Yeah, disoriented from just waking up. Yeah, had no idea what was going on. So they were able to get her out of the home. They attacked her, raped her multiple times, um, but Shara was a fighter, and she fought back. She grabbed Cannon and pulled the hair out of his head. And if she hadn't done this, there's no way to know if they would have ever actually caught Cannon. It's crazy that it was like so close to the house too and nobody saw that. Nobody saw it. Nobody heard it. Nothing. Crazy. Yeah. The two men um, then proceeded to kill her. Both men were indicted um, of murder in 2001. Cannon decided to go to trial since he was only 17 at the time of the murder. The state of Florida did not seek the uh, the death penalty as the Supreme Court ruled that juveniles would not be executed. So he really got off lucky. I mean, he was not 17 when he was caught, but because he was 17 at the time of the murder, there was no way for them to seek the death penalty in his case. So he took the gamble and went to trial. Huh. They, um, they did, however, uh, plan to seek the death penalty in Cochran's case because he was not underage at that point. He was, he was an adult. Yeah. Um, the state attorney, Bernie McCabe, said, quote, If you look at this, the circumstances of the death of Shara Ferger, you make no qualms in seeking the death penalty. Because of this, Cochran felt that it was too much of a gamble for him to go to trial. His attorney, Edward Libling, said, quote, if the death penalty was not in the equation, the dynamic changes dramatically. So basically, they decided to, quote, spare the family a trial. Mm. 
I don't think this is the case. I just think he was scared and he didn't want to die because he knew he was going to get the death penalty. Um, however, they did feel that they actually kind of had a case. Um, and if the death penalty hadn't have been on the table, they would have gone to trial, um, claiming that Cochran was mentally disabled. The only evidence that they had against Cochran was that prosecutors had against Cochran was the bite mark. Um, and this, this clay, this case is like clearly like a perfect example that clearly shows that bite impressions often lead to the wrong person being charged or convicted. Um, they were basically going to claim that just like Hubble and Morris, Cochran was falsely charged and was innocent of this crime. Liebling said, quote, we intended to make the jury aware that there had been mistakes originally that the wrong person had been indicted, that this is not an exact science, that this is not the same as DNA. This is not as good as DNA. It's merely the opinion of a dentist. And I feel like this has kind of popped up in a couple of our, in, in a couple of our cases. These yeah. dental impressions are not reliable. Um, however, in this case, I 100% believe that they did get the right person um, because of dental impressions, which is lucky. Um I think it is tough though with like like a fingerprint's a fingerprint but then like if you bite somebody the skin is like going to be elastic or like mm-hmm. elasticity. And I think it also has a lot to do with how the pictures were taken at the autopsy. Was the lighting right? Were they able to get all of the indentations perfectly there yeah. um, to even compare it to? I mean, I think there's a lot. Like he said, this is not DNA. It's the opinion of a dentist, of an odontologist. Um, and opinions are not facts. And sometimes they're wrong. Definitely. Anyway, the prosecution offered Cochran a deal, a life sentence, um, and he agreed. Shara's parents had agreed to this, although they weren't 100% satisfied, but they felt that this was the only closure that they would be able to get. Um Shara's sister, however, was upset that her opinion was not taken into account. At this point, she was 23 years old. She said, quote, With how brutally murdered my sister was, and for them to get two life sentences, it's all through loopholes. I am not satisfied. Which I think is really heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, she really wanted justice for her sister, and she wasn't able to get it because of loopholes. It's tough with, like how well she knew both the killers too yeah yeah i mean her uncle and her ex-boyfriend that is awful to think about terrible cannon um was sentenced to life in prison after a jury conviction uh supposedly it only took them an hour to make their decision um and i think as of 2005 he's always basically said that he he won't admit to what he did As far as I can tell, both Cochran and Cannon are still in prison. Cochran's file was updated on 5, 10, 20, which was about two days ago. Um, And it says that, you know, he's there, life sentence, basically all the information that they have. Um, Cannon's file looks a little bit different, though, and it says he's out of department custody by court order. Not 100% sure what this means, but I looked it up and it seems as though he is in court somewhere for some reason. Um, I'm not 
really sure why he's in court. I will say this case was not super easy to find information on. Um, and there was really nothing about Cannon's life before, Cochran's life before, um, or really Shara's life before. A lot of it was just solely this case and the trial. So I'm not sure. Um, but this, but his file was also updated on 5-10-20. So that's about it for that case. That was a really harsh one, I know. Um, it's always tough to do an episode about a child. Definitely. Definitely. Um, but we hope that you enjoyed the information and we'll be back at you with another episode next Tuesday, hopefully. I'm sorry about the delay this week, but we should be back on track for Tuesday next week. See you guys then. All right. Bye. Before we officially end this episode, I wanted to tell you something super exciting that is happening in the Forensic Miles world. We are opening a merch store so forensicmiles.com is going to be opening up in the next couple of weeks and in celebration of our grand opening we're going to be having a super amazing super awesome giveaway um so if you want to stay up to date with our launch what kind of products we're going to sell um obviously it's true crime related so we know you guys are going to love it um please subscribe to our mailing list. It's uh, www.forensicmiles.com. The website is not open yet, so all you will see is a subscribe page. Um, So just hit subscribe and you'll get all the information. Don't miss your chance. Giveaway is going to be, it's going to be pretty killer. Killer. That's all I'm going to say about it. (laughs) Yep. Um, we're super excited. Um, and we hope that you guys are excited too. Um, so check it out and more info will be coming within the next couple of weeks.